Welcome to the Libraries Transform Texas podcast, where we showcase the value of Texas librarians and libraries. This podcast episode is episode two, season two, October 2021. I'm Kate Sweeney. Today, I'm excited to be celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month as I interview Purabel Pre honor, honor author Adriana Cuevas. A little bit of background about Adriana. She is a first-generation Cuban-American originally from Miami, Florida. A former Spanish and ESOL teacher, Adriana currently resides in Austin, Texas with her husband and son. When not working with TOEFL students, wrangling multiple pets, including an axolotl, and practicing fencing with her son, she is writing her next middle-grade novel. Welcome, Adriana. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to chat with my favorite people today, which are librarians. Uh, so this is going to be great. We're so excited to have you. Though I know you have your second book that came out this last month that we all want to hear about. I would love to start our discussion first by talking a bit about your Pirabelle pre-honor book and your debut, no debut novel from last year, The Total Eclipse of Nestor Lopez. Just to summarize the basic storyline for those of you that haven't read the book, Nestor Lopez and his mother have recently moved to a small Texas town to live with Nestor's grandmother. As a military kid, Nestor has moved countless times with this move and ends up bringing different, but this move ends up bringing different challenges and adventures, some of which come from his ability to talk to animals and an evil witch which resides in this place known as the Tula Vieja. But perhaps one of the greatest surprises about this move has something to do with the friends that he meets along the way. So we're just going to launch into some questions here. Um, the first one I have for you, Adriana, is a little bit about the magical realism that you use in the book. The way you use talking animals as playful, humorous relief throughout the novel, as well as how you introduce the Tule Vieja as the villain, seemed effortless. Can you talk a bit about incorporating magical realism in your novel? Did you find any particular challenges on striking the balance of reality and magic in your story? These elements wove so naturally within the story, I just wondered if the process felt that natural to you as a writer. I think writing uh, contemporary fantasy is something that comes natural to me. And it's only because of how my brain is wired to usually come up with the most bonkers idea possible. I am one who I have always had a an incredibly overactive imagination. And so um, grounding things in reality is really not my forte. I'm always, I'm, my inclination is always going to be, how can I make this as ridiculous as possible? I guess you could say, but it was, um, it was a task on my part because in, on the one hand, I was presenting a story at a, about a boy who's separated from his father. He has moved around the country a ton, so he's very reluctant to make friends. You know, these were very serious, realistic issues that kids face. So I wanted to make sure that the incorporation of one, Nestor's ability to talk to animals, the witch that ends up in the woods, um, all of that ended up being something that wasn't just such a 180 from a very serious storyline. And so I think that's why the story opens immediately with the reader experiencing Nestor talking to animals, because I really wanted to let the reader know right off the bat, this is not a contemporary story. This is not a serious book. This is a fantasy story 
Um, and so I felt like making sure that right away from the first page, um, I let the reader see that ability in Nestor, see the humor that the animals brought, it wouldn't feel so disjointed later on in the story should I introduce those things later. I love that too. I feel like it set the tone really early on in the book and that really worked for me as a reader personally. And I loved how you said that um, just about yourself that you just wanted something bonkers. Um, I think it's good to know these things about yourself when you're creating. Um, that's fantastic. So my next question is, in an interview you did with Latinx in Kids Lit, you said that you had, quote, never understood the importance of seeing yourself represented in stories until you were no longer represented in society around you. So I'm curious if you could tell us um, a little bit about your cultural story arc that led you to that statement. Absolutely. So I grew up in Miami, Florida, which the joke among Cuban Americans is that Miami is just northern Cuba. There are so many Cuban immigrants that I could go out, you know, throughout my whole day without ever having to speak English. Uh, I could have my pick of restaurants where Cuban food was available. Um, you could buy pastelitos de guayaba from the bakery at every grocery store. Uh, and music on the radio. You had your choice of Cuban uh, music coming through. So I, I never felt that lack of seeing myself in a story because I saw myself everywhere else. I was actually the majority culture almost. There were Cuban Americans in leadership positions in Miami. So I had you know, people to aspire to, people to look up to. And it wasn't until I moved to the Midwest to go to college, that was such an, a culture shock bordering on traumatic for me because I had never felt like a minority before. And I had never been made to feel like a minority before until I moved uh, for college. All of a sudden, I could not find any sort of Spanish that was being spoken anywhere. If people did find out I spoke Spanish, they assumed I was Mexican because that's, if you speak Spanish, that must be where you're from. Um, couldn't find in the grocery store, even the ingredients to cook Cuban food myself at home. Um, so I think that's when you realize how much representation in books matters because I couldn't, I couldn't feel valued anywhere else. And so the only place I could turn to were books. And so that's when I was starting to devour stories by other Cuban American authors, because I, I needed that connection that I didn't have anywhere else in my life because it didn't exist anymore. And so I think for a lot of our kids that don't see themselves in larger society, they need that safe place. They need to feel that connection. And so that's why you know, showing all kinds of kids in books is so important. That's fascinating. And um, I think for those of us that, you know, have moved around and things like that, we've seen some of those cultural shifts. But I think for those of us that haven't, books do provide the window into those cultural experiences, even if we stay within the same geographic place. Um, and so that is such a huge factor and um, importance to reading, especially with with youth, middle, middle readers in this case. Um, so my next question is, a big part of the book's plot revolves around the fact that Nestor Lopez's father is active military, serving in Afghanistan during the time the novel takes place. 
with everything recently happening in the news in that part of the world, have you gone back to reflect at all on the characters and how they would be affected today um, by this turn of events? Or maybe even have you considered a sequel? I do get asked a lot about a sequel and especially when I'm doing school visits because kids always want to know what happens next with Nestor, which first is one of the highest compliments you can pay an author. Because if when you're done reading their book, you think to yourself, well, I never need to hear from them again, you know, that's not the best thing. So hearing from kids that they're clamoring for a sequel is just very heartwarming. At the same time, it lets me give students an insight into the publishing industry, because in all honesty, writing a sequel is not my choice. Um, that's something that my publisher would determine uh, if, they deem it necessary to hear more from Nestor. Right now, there are no plans uh, for a sequel. But what I love to tell kids is that's, I'm a fan of fan fiction. If you wanna hear more from Nestor and his story, then write it yourself. What do you think happens next? You know, Use your imagination, take those characters and run with them and see what, where you think they'll go. For me personally, if I were to write a sequel, Nestor's dad would definitely come back from being overseas because um, I do feel very strongly about veterans and their treatment when they come back in terms of their mental health and how we care for them. Um, and that's definitely connected to my husband and his experiences in the military and what it was like for us when he came back from being deployed. Um, so I would definitely want to explore those themes. I think I am actually in future manuscripts that are have nothing to do with Nestor, probably going to end up exploring uh, some veterans issues, uh, because that's just something that's close to my heart. That's a huge topic. Um, and I feel like that that would be enough for a sequel, in my opinion. And I, I'm like all of those um, young readers that would love to hear more about the story. I almost wonder if you should tell them to write to your publisher, your agent and um, demand <laughs> a sequel, maybe like a, have a little bit of control. We'll start a campaign demanding more. There you go. <laughs> Um, on the note of current events, a lot has been going on in Cuba as well recently. You have been posting about some of it on your Instagram stories. Um, for those of us who haven't been keeping up with the international headlines, can you fill us in a little bit on what's happening there? Uh, sure. It, as, as many political situations do, it changes every day. But back when so many of us Cuban-Americans were posting about Cuba, it was because we were seeing protests, Cubans were protesting in the streets against the government. And that is something because of the government in Cuba that is rarely seen because it's dangerous. It can be fatal. Uh, you are not supposed to speak out against the government. So we were, you know, those of us in the US were wanting to support our brothers and sisters that were speaking out um, because one of the biggest issues in Cuba is uh, the lack of information. It's very hard to get information out about what the real conditions are in the country because the government controls all sources of information. And actually just this morning, I read they recently passed a law that uh, it's considered cyber terrorism to speak out against the government on the internet. Uh, so I think for me, there's nothing I can do here I, in central Texas other than try to raise awareness. And it's a difficult thing feeling helpless like that, particularly 
coming from an immigrant family where you know that you're like, for me, my dad risked his life to come over here. We had other family members risk everything to come over here, start all over again from nothing. So to be able to see that the reasons that they left, I mean, my dad left in the 1960s, the reasons that he left are still happening today, are still forcing people um, off the island. It's just, it's very emotional. And it's something that I really wanted to speak out on and bring awareness to, because like I said, there's not much that we can do other than speak about it so that nobody is coming from a place of, well, I wasn't aware that that was happening. You know, we all need to keep an eye on uh, how others are being treated, regardless of your connection to the place or not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there is so much going on in the news right now. Certain things kind of get a lot of coverage and then other things may be um, not as in, in the focus. And um, so it has been really interesting to follow your your threads and things like that on uh, on the topic. But man, that is sobering about what you said about your dad. The things he experienced in the 1960s are happening right now. Um, it's a very sobering. Yeah. <laughs> um, I definitely need to do some more reading um, about what's going on there. Um, on kind of shifting um, themes a little bit, you have a really fun and flavorsome Instagram account where you post <laughs> your baking and cooking adventures. Many of these recipes are Cuban dishes. Um, tell us a bit about your baking and cooking influences and interests. And I'm curious personally, if this creative endeavor interacts at all with your writing process. Oh, it absolutely is part of my writing process. One, because I'm a procrastinator and hey, let's hop in the kitchen instead of sitting down at my laptop. Two, I, um, I value taking risks and trying new things. And so that's why, I mean, what you see on Instagram are the success stories. Every so often I'll post a cake that didn't come out of its pan or something that spilled in the oven. But as a writer and honestly, as, as a baker, uh, you have to be willing to make mistakes. You have to be willing to take risks and try new things. And sometimes it's gonna go okay. Um, and sometimes it's not, but if you never do that, like my writing would always be the same. If I never did that, my baking would be chocolate chip cookies 24 seven, which there's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes you want to try something else. And so for me, baking and writing are actually connected. They're the same process to me. It's all about attempting new things. Um, I, I think about, I think also as a, as coming from an immigrant family where, you know, they were dropped into a whole new environment with whole new culinary preferences. Um, for me, cooking Cuban food so much is just a way of preserving my culture, um, you know, exposing my son to it so that he grows up liking pastelitos de guayaba as much as I did, which he does, thankfully. Um, and so it's kind of multi-purpose. Like I said, it, it, reflects my writing process. It helps me honor my culture. And best part is I like to eat. So <laughs> that also helps that I'm in the kitchen making something to tempt myself with. I love that. And I also, I mean, I have a lot of experience in my family where you share stories when you eat, like when you kind of like you were saying, like sharing these recipes with your son, like there's something about kind of being nourished in that way that just makes you at ease with, um, I don't know, talking about memories, like it's just very connected. It's very emotional. Um, at it is, it is. I always, I, I tend to share with kids that when you come from 
an immigrant family where they have had to leave everything behind and start over. You know, I look at my husband's family and they're from Southwest Oklahoma and they have all these family relics and artifacts that they can trace back generations like, oh, that tractor seat belonged to great, great grandpa Isabel um, and whatnot. I don't have any of those things because they couldn't come here with anything. We're lucky to have just a handful of photographs from when my family was living in Cuba. So when you start over in a new country, the only things that you have to preserve your culture and your history are stories, your language, and then the recipes that people remember. And so that's why I think cooking Cuban food is so important to me because I feel like I'm continuing that preservation um, of my family history. And so while my, my husband and my son may get tired of eating picadillo for the 12th time in a week, uh, it's really important to me. And I like it. It tastes good. <laughs> well, if they get tired of anything that you're posting on your Instagram account, just <laughs> let me know. I'm local. I'd be happy yep. to come over. But yeah, that is just such an interesting reflection. I have never thought about that. Um, with, you know, that immigrant experience that, you know, the stories and, you know, that all of these things, there is no physical object that can be linked, um, generally speaking, because of the nature of immigration. Um, and okay, so I didn't write this question in, but I just feel like this also needs to be here. I would just like to personally hear more about this story in the 1960s, what this journey looked like for your family and um, the timeline, the means in which they came over. Um, so I hope it's okay that I'm just talking <laughs> No, you're it. fine. But um, because... before I go to my last question, I just feel like this is, a, um, this is left a little undone, this topic. So I would love to hear a yeah. little bit more. That's why it was so important for me to write Cuba in my pocket, you know, because such a huge part of my goal as an Which author. Which is your upcoming book that's being launched this month, just so that yes. everybody knows yes. it's listening. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Yeah. Um, my goal as an author is to preserve my family history. With Nestor, yes, it's this silly story about a boy who can talk to animals, but it was my way of remembering what it was like for me right at the beginning of my marriage when my husband was deployed. So many of the feelings that Nestor has are exactly what I had. And so writing Cuba in my pocket was my way of preserving my dad's history, you know, and, and since my dad passed away in November, now I'm so even much more thankful that I did that because I think as, as adults, as we get older, we take for granted the fact that our elders aren't going to be here forever. And so it's so important to get their stories and to preserve them. So for my for my dad, he came over by himself when he was 15. I I I gave him a little age cut. Uh, he was very pleased with that because I wanted to write a middle grade and we can't have 15 year olds apparently in middle grade. So in Cuba in my pocket, the main character comes over when he's a little bit younger. Um, but because of the political situation in Cuba, the government decided that they were going to be sending kids to um, young rebels camps. Basically, they were almost like indoctrination camps. And my grandparents decided that they did not want that for their child. They wanted to you know, be able to choose what he was going to learn. Um, and so through a whole rather <laughs> underground method uh, that is explored in the book, um, he made it to the United States. He was able to stay with a cousin of ours who was a missionary just for a little bit, but she kept taking in kids because it was just in the 1960s, this wave of unaccompanied minors essentially coming from Cuba. 
she kept taking in kids. And so my dad eventually had to stay with a foster family uh, in Key Largo that he absolutely loved. Um, he, I want to say three or four years ago, actually got to meet up again with the son of the family that he stayed with. Uh, and it was really meaningful for, for him to be able to do that. And so um, after my dad came, then this differs from the book, the book has a different ending. Um, but after a year, my grandfather and my uncle were able to come over. And then a year after they did, my grandmother was finally able to come over. And my favorite part of my grandmother's documentation uh, that we still have, that because she obviously had to take her passport with her. Uh, on Cuban passports, you have to list an occupation. Well, my grandmother in Cuba was a dentist. On her passport, it says she was a housewife because Cuba, the government was not letting medical professionals leave the country. And so she had to lie about her profession on her passport. And so that's something just whenever I, we still have her passport and whenever I look at it, I just kind of smile because it's a, a little historical insight that if you just looked at the passport, you'd assume, okay, she was a housewife, but she actually wasn't. <laughs> that is fascinating. Um, and just so many of those intricacies of those of us that haven't experienced that, um, Gosh, okay, so we do need to talk about all the stuff you have coming up, including this book, Keep In My Pocket. So you seem as busy as ever with um, upcoming books, new manuscripts, author speaking events. So I would just love to hear you tell us a little bit about what you have coming up that people could look for. Absolutely. So Cube In My Pocket, my middle grade historical fiction, releases September 21st. And um, my book launch event is through Book People in Austin. And I'm incredibly excited because I get to talk with Ellen O, the author of the Spirit Hunters series. And I'm like, I have to hold myself back because I feel like I'm gonna just fangirl for the whole event and forget to talk about my own book um, because I love Ellen's writing so much. I love her advocacy for diverse authors and their stories. Um, and so that's happening on the 21st through Book People. But yes, it's a definite balance as an author because I am launching this book, but like the same day Cuban My Pocket comes out, the paperback of The Total Eclipse of Nestor Lopez is available. Yes, um, I have turned in my third book to my agent and it is jumping me squarely back into my comfort zone of contemporary fantasy where I just get to be as ridiculous as I want. And I'm super excited about that. And I'm currently working on my fourth manuscript. So um, the fact that my overactive brain and imagination is uh, always going 100 miles an hour fits for having multiple irons in the fire. Um, but yeah, I do school visits. I, I was an educator for 16 years before I started writing full time. So I love school visits and I offer free 30 minute virtual school visits through my website because I just love chatting with kids about books. When I was a teacher, my students always knew the best way to get me off track was to ask me what I was reading. And I would end up talking forever about my latest book I was reading. Um, so lots of school visits. And then I'm actually really excited. I get to speak at TLA in April. Um, I'm going to be on a panel with a group of other authors just talking about what's new in YA and middle grade from authors right here in Texas. And so yay, I get to geek out about books again. So Awesome. Um, we will all have to be looking for you at TLA in April. That just sounds so fantastic. And um, fun fact, that's where Adriana and I met the first time. 
Um, yes, I was thinking about that. I remember you and I being at the volunteering at the signing area. It was so yes, fun. Yes, it was a bonding experience. <laughs> well, because then that, that was it. That was it for TLA, you know. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, that seems like a thousand years ago. It does. It really does. <laughs> I hope we can all see each other in person this April. That just sounds so absolutely. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much for your time, Adriana. Um, what a fascinating story. We're so excited about your upcoming book. I should say your upcoming book. I mean, it's launched. It's here. Um, yes, it's yes, been upcoming yay. all leading up to this interview. And here it is. And then your upcoming manuscript being submitted where you get to go bonkers again with fantastical <laughs> elements. Um, and thank you all for listening to our podcast today. Please join us next month for our next episode, Mobile Outreach, celebrating the Libraries Transform Texas Week. For more information about the Texas Library Association, go to txla.org. Thanks again, Adriana. Thank you.